0: Well, you can go ahead and open your Bibles if you have them to uh, the Old Testament to Job 28. As Steve said, we're going to be in Job this morning, Uh, Job 28. I am really glad to be back uh, this morning. It's going to be a great day. I hope you can go back for the uh, block party. Uh, It should be be interesting. Can you say mechanical bull? So that's all I'm saying. It should be fun. So uh, hopefully you can be with us. So if you're a guest today, just so you know what we're doing this summer, we've been in a series called Moonwalking with God. In which we're really trying to fine tune um, the art of remembering, you know, remembering who God is and what He's done for us, and we're doing it by retelling and uh, revisiting and reflecting on Old Testament stories, just too good and too important to forget. And uh, this morning, I want to revisit the story of this guy named Job. Now, some of you are familiar with his story; others, maybe not so much. But let me give you my uh, here's my personal Ray K summary. Okay. According to the scriptural narrative, um, Job was a pretty remarkable guy. He was a good man, a righteous man. He was a worshiper of God. He was a a man of integrity, a faithful husband, a loving father of 10 kids. Uh, He was a successful, um, wealthy, ancient, Near Eastern businessman, basically, who was well-respected by his extended family and by his community. And then one day, Job loses just about everything he had. I mean, life for him takes a pretty bad turn. Uh, for example, violent marauders uh, come, invade, and steal his possessions, and uh, and murder most of his servants. Uh, a natural disaster wipes out his flocks of, of sheep and camels. A desert to- a desert tornado uh, strikes the home of his firstborn son, uh, and uh, and 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 kills all of his all of his children because they were all at that son's house having a big party. And eventually, Job loses his health, he gets really sick, and so, you know, without warning and through what uh, appeared to be, from Job's perspective, the random evil of the world, uh, this guy experiences some, some, some pretty serious suffering. And uh, he struggles with it, you know. He does. He struggles to grasp why, why the pain, why, why the suffering, why do these bad things happen? And he perseverates on the question. He ruminates over it. He, he, uh, he talks about it with his friends. They kind of debate it. They, they, they dialogue about it. And although he never curses God, he does question God. And it seems to me, from the first time I read it, that Job's story is really our story. Don't you think? Because pain and, and loss and tragedy and, and sickness and suffering, you know, not to mention the confusion over, confusion over why it all happens, is a universal part of the human experience. It's my experience, it's your experience. Um, I mean, when we, we face difficulties uh, and we face trials that seem to come out of the blue, that just seem random, or when we have tough decisions to make and we're not sure what to do, or if we're in a relationship that we're not sure how to navigate or, or we're wrestling with a problem we don't know how to overcome or we're suffering injustice of some sort or experiencing pain and loss and we're not sure how to manage that, how to survive it, you know, and how to reconcile it in, in our minds. In the context of crisis... What do we do? We ask why. Like Job, we feel the need for some insight, for some wisdom to handle what life throws at us, and we sense this this wisdom is out there somewhere. We just need to find it. And what's interesting is, for Job, it's in the midst of his suffering and it's in the midst of his confusion that he has sort of an aha type moment, and he offers us a a, 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 what is essentially a poetic brain dump on this whole topic of wisdom. In chapter 28, I'm not going to read the whole chapter, but in chapter 28, he says things like, beginning in verse 9, he says this. He says, people assault the flinty rock with their hands and lay bare the roots of the mountains. They tunnel through the rock, their eyes see all its treasures. They search the sources of the rivers and bring hidden things to light. But where can wisdom be found? Where does understanding dwell? No mortal comprehends its worth. It cannot be found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. It cannot be bought with the finest gold, nor can its, its price be weighed in silver. Verse 20, he says, when there, uh, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? It's hidden from the eyes of every living thing, concealed from the birds of the air. Destruction and death say, only a rumor of it has reached our ears. And then Job says this, he says, You know what? God understands the way to it. He alone knows where it dwells, for he, see, he views the ends of the earth and sees everything under the heavens when he established the force of the wind and measured out the waters, when he made a decree for the rain and a path for the thunderstorm, then he looked at wisdom, praised it, and confirmed it and tested it. And he said to the human race, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. And to shun evil is understanding. Now, there's a lot that we can learn, you know, from the whole story and life of Job. And maybe sometime we'll, we'll take a long, hard look at it. But, but in this one um, reflective soliloquy, here in the middle of the book, we find Job summarizing what his painful experience uh, was teaching him, teaching him about wisdom. And uh, there are several things that he tells us, and I want to just talk about them briefly. Uh, The first thing he emphasizes is the value and elusiveness of wisdom, right? I mean, he says, wisdom is so precious that as human beings, we search for it. And just like we pan for gold and rivers, just like we dig through rock and tunnel into mountains to find jewels and other precious metals, we go to great lengths to find wisdom because there's just there's just nothing else on earth, earth that compares to it. It's, it's invaluable. You know, we can't buy it with gold and silver or cash. And yet as much as we want it, as hard as we look for it, as hard as we work to, to get it, we just can't seem to obtain it. In fact, with very, very poetic language and imagery, Job says wisdom seems nowhere to be found within the creation. He, uh, he personifies creation. He, he, he tells us, you know, the ocean says, I don't have it. And the birds, well, they don't know where to find it. Even death says it's only heard rumors about it, i.e. wisdom, you know, cannot be found in the land of the living. So, now what is Job getting at here? Well, <clears throat> I think he's telling us, look, despite all of our uh, our desires and our abilities and, and uh, our achievements, as finite human beings, we just cannot solve the mysteries of suffering. We're unable to reconcile the full meaning and purpose behind it, especially when it happens to reasonably good people, especially when it happens to us. Nothing in, in our world explains it. And that was true in Job's day. It remains true today. We can fly to the moon and and go on to explore Mars. We can map the human genome. We can identify subatomic particles. We can compose symphonies, write poetry like Keats or Frost. We can paint like Rembrandt or Roy Lichtenstein. We can design faster and faster computers. We can develop greater technologies. But in and of ourselves, can we ever hope to find wisdom, the kind that speaks of ultimate reality and truth. And Job, Job answers, he says, no, not on our own we can't. Not even Google can help us. That's in the Hebrew, just in case you're wondering. <laughs> now... Before we go on, let's, let's, let's define wisdom, because you've know, you got to wonder, what is Job talking about exactly? Well, in the ancient Hebrew, uh, in the ancient Hebrew language, there are two common words for wisdom, uh, and Job uses both of them together here several times. For example, in verse 20, he says, Where then does wisdom come from? Where does understanding dwell? The first term he uses is the ter- Hebrew term chokmah, which means to master something or to be skillful. Parallel to that, Job uses a second term, uh, bina, which means to have insight or, or, or discernment on how things work. And so in Job's mind, wisdom isn't so much uh, about knowledge or information per se, but about the practical application of what we come to know. Uh, in the same sense, all throughout scripture, wisdom refers to skillful living you know the ability to discern and to follow uh, god's design for us as human beings and lead good and healthy helpful safe satisfying lives but here's the deal wisdom isn't just about knowing and submitting to god's moral law and we need to we need to recognize that you know, don't get me wrong i mean obeying god is smart and absolutely the right thing to do and we're called to do it but But wisdom is also about discerning what to do in the high percentage of life where moral laws don't apply. See, sometimes our approach to life is very secular. We're like, all I need are the facts. Just get me the facts. I'll go from there. Other times, our our approach is very religious. All I need are God's moral laws, God's moral rules. Give them to me, and I'll go from there. Um. And in some cases, these approaches work. I mean, sometimes all we need are are facts, right? What medicine should I take that's going to help me get better? I'll take it. Uh, In some cases, all you need is moral law. You know, should I commit adultery? No. Should I steal? No. Should I murder? No. That's easy. But what about other situations in life where we face questions like what college do I go to or do I go at all or, you know, do I get married or not? Do, and if so, do I marry this person or do I marry that person? Do I follow this career path or that career path? Do I move or stay put? Do I speak out or keep my mouth shut? Right? You see what I'm saying? So many of our options in life are morally permissible and that uh, we're given it just this incredible amount of freedom to make decisions every day and 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 knowledge of facts is important, and knowledge of moral law is critical, but they won't give us everything we need for a well-lived life. We need more. We need wisdom. Because let's face it, on top of everything else, when life goes bad and you experience pain and, and, and suffering in some form or another like Job, hard facts and moral rules won't comfort you. They won't necessarily help you reconcile the pain of what's happening and know how to respond to it. And Job says, look, I need wisdom, you need wisdom, we all need wisdom. And coming to that conclusion requires uh, requires two things. First, uh, it requires recognizing the complexity of life. I mean, if you haven't figured it out already, life is rarely simple. I mean, we are all very complicated physical emotional intellectual social spiritual imperfect beings trying the best we can to exist and live out life together in a very imperfect world and on some level we all know this and yet we often set our sights and our hopes on simple answers and easy solutions and that's true of you know that's true of religious people that's true of irreligious people for example the secular relativist says it's very simple. Life is irrational. It's nothing more than a biolog- biological accident, a freak of, uh, of, of the cosmos. It's, it, there's no ultimate meaning to your existence and therefore live however you want, do whatever you want. It doesn't matter. On the other hand, the religious moralist says, wait, 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 there is meaning to our existence, and if you're good enough and you work hard enough and you follow the rules just right, everything will go right for you. But can you see how both of these philosophies, secular relativism or religious moralism, how they fail and they're, they're foolish? Why? Because they're too reductionistic. In other words, they're just, they're just too simple. Understand, nowhere in Scripture are we ever told that life is simple. Nowhere are we ever told that that good things always happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. Instead, we're told the the harsh reality. We're told that sometimes great things happen to miserable people and terrible, tragic things happen to very innocent people. But in the end, at some point or another, pain and suffering comes to all of us. Jesus put it this way, he said, The rain falls on the righteous and the unrighteous, the storm comes on the just and the unjust. What's that about? I don't know. It's complicated. In the book, the Old Testament book of Proverbs, Solomon, who's considered one of the the wisest uh, men who's ever lived, he has a lot to say about the inexplicable complexity of life. For example, he says things like um, in Proverbs 14, he says, uh, All hard work brings a profit. In other words, if you work hard, you'll be wealthy. But elsewhere in like Proverbs 13, he says, you know, some people work really hard and injustice sweeps it all away and they're left in poverty. So, is that a biblical contradiction? Well, no, it's not. It's just reality. Right? Sometimes hard work produces wealth and sometimes it doesn't. Why? I don't know. It's complicated. As parents, we sometimes fall into uh, the simplicity trap when we read things in, in Scripture like Proverbs 22, where we're told, train a child in the way they should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. And we interpret it as a guarantee. Is that a guarantee? No way is that a guarantee. Because sometimes you can do just about everything right with a son or daughter, and they just blow up on you. And, and, and make some really bad choices that are disappointing. And, you know, we have parents are just beating themselves up. Or, what did I do wrong? And blah, 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 blah. That's not a guarantee. It's just the way life is. Life is complicated. Relationships are complicated. Children are complicated. People are complicated. The world is very complicated. Why things happen the way they do is just really hard to comprehend. I mean, look at Job. He he was a good man, and yet he suffered injustice, pain, loss, sickness, disappointment. And so, you know, he most certainly recognized the complexity of life. The second thing wisdom requires is that we recognize our own human limitations. You know, Job was an intelligent, articulate, respected, successful, moral guy, but he realized, you know, he didn't have all the answers to the questions of life. He humbly admitted needing help from outside himself. Again, in Proverbs, Solomon uh, has a lot to say about wisdom. And, and, and one of the things he says is, do not be wise in your own eyes. And I think it's fair to say that the overall message of the book of Proverbs is, if you are wise in your own eyes, you're really a fool. But if you're a fool in your own eyes, then you're on the path to, 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 to wisdom. Wisdom. Because arrogance will get you nowhere. And Solomon summarizes it this way. He says, with humility comes wisdom. So you see, Job is telling us that wisdom is is valuable. We know it. We need it. But it's elusive. It's elusive. It requires we humbly recognize the world is complicated and our understanding is limited. And so we, we won't find true wisdom in ourselves or even within the creation, the land of the living, as Job puts it. So where then do we find it? We find it outside of ourselves. The origin of wisdom is God. Job says, God understands the way to wisdom. He alone knows where it dwells. In other words, he's saying, look, there is is true wisdom. Out there somewhere, somebody knows everything about the universe, how it works, how it functions. Somebody knows about humanity, what is good and right and healthy for us. There's somebody who knows the correct path to take, the right choice to make, the best thing to do. And that somebody is God, the creator of all things famous uh, famous 17th century theologian pastor and poet Isaac Watts put it this way he said he formed the stars those heavenly flames he counts their numbers calls their names his wisdom's vast and knows no bound a deep where all our thoughts are drowned I like that that makes sense to me not everything makes sense to me when I was back in um, grad school. I had an old Testament professor. His name was Dr. Meredith Klein. The guy was absolutely brilliant. And I took him from one of my, for one of my first, um, uh, one of my first grad school courses. And, uh, he was talking, man, and I didn't know what this dude was talking about. And I, it was so over my head. I just tell you, the truth is I got an F on my first exam, uh, in his class. I got better. Uh, and it wasn't in the class, wasn't in Job. So don't worry about it. It was, it was all good. But, um, Sometimes Dr. Klein said things that made a lot of sense to me. In fact, he, he did write a commentary on Job. And in that commentary, he says this, "'Wisdom is directly connected with God, who is the source of wisdom. A man's acknowledgement that he and his w- world are subject to the Creator is the lifeblood of wisdom. A man begins to be wise when he ceases to strive for wisdom independently of God and in his own power.'" Apart from a true recognition of divine revelation, man's me- uh, meditation and investigation produce not wisdom, but folly. So here's my Ray K. translation of Dr. Klein. He says, as creator, God alone is the origin and source of wisdom, and to deny that is foolishness. Speaking of creation, do you guys recognize, you guys recognize and realize that, that creation accounts... In all of the religions and cultural mythologies, assert that the world came into being through some supernatural conflict, some power struggle, some explosive accident or interplay or fighting among multiple gods and deities. You realize that? It's our scriptures alone that assert God alone with no rivals, that God alone, in his wisdom and in his power, delighted. Delighted to create the beautiful, amazing world we know, as the supreme artist and craftsman, God brought into being something from nothing, order from uh, from chaos. And Scripture tells us the story of how God formed human beings in His image, and yet and given freedom. Yet we 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 rebelled and we turned against them, and therefore all kinds of things not in originally intended entered the creational scene: deceit, violence injustice, disease, pain, suffering, and and death. And although the world retains its beauty and its order, the creation is marred and it's broken, and so are we. Yet God's plan to redeem his creation, including us, was to himself enter this world, live the life man should have lived, die the death we deserve to die, and by grace provide a way back to Eden to rescue us, to save us, to redeem us, to give us new life. And every day God is at work, even through the brokenness of the world, to bring good from evil. No wonder it's complicated, yeah? No wonder it's complicated. No wonder it's hard for us to wrap our minds around. Look, the best I can tell you is this in your life, in my life, in this world, God knows what He's doing. He, the Creator, alone is truly wise. And that's, you know, that's what Job is telling us in this soliloquy, namely that as human beings, we want wisdom, we need wisdom, but only God has it. And if Job ended with that thought in verse 27, that'd be a bummer, man, that'd be unfortunate, but he doesn't end there. In verse 28, he informs us that God is willing to grant wisdom. The question is, how do we attain it? Yeah, how do we do that? Job relates the answer. He says, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. Now, just so we know, Job's not alone on this. Solomon said the same thing. Solomon said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The psalmist wrote, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of, the, of wisdom. The prophet Isaiah declared salvation and wisdom. The fear of the Lord is key to this treasure. Fear of God. How are we to understand that? How do we understand this idea of fear? Because you know, because of language, because of cultural differences, our inclination is to interpret this to mean being scared of God, being frightened of him. But that's not really the case. The Hebrew term for fear carries with it the idea that, that with a sense of our own weakness and frailty, we are in awe of God, of who he is. It's all about, it's about, it's about wonder. It's about, it's about honor. It's about respect. It's about reverence. Uh, While I was on vacation one Friday, my wife Margie and I uh, went downtown Chicago, went to the art museum and went to see, specifically went to see the Roy Lichtenstein exhibit. Anybody see that? Couple people, uh, Lichtenstein was—he um, was a pop artist of the nineteen sixties. He did some really interesting work. Uh, it's probably uh, you probably don't recognize it in your mind, but if you see it, you say, "Oh, I kind of remember those 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 pictures." For example, one of his famous works was this called "Drowning Girl." He used to, and and you can't really see it in our um, in our graphic, but he he painted with little tiny pixel paintbrush marks and he created all these things and he created kind of these cartoony things he also created maybe this one's more familiar this one's called Wham uh, and, uh, and, and and you can sort of see the pixelization there but my favorite one and maybe this one is familiar to this to you this one is called Hot Dog with Mustard this was this was my favorite and you can see the little pin marks there and I, I, I just stood in front of it and looked at it while I was in the museum and it was moving and uh, but then I had to leave and go get something to eat very quickly so <laughs> Now you're thinking, I know what you're thinking. You think, okay, how is this relevant to our discussion? Can you get on with it? It's relevant in this way. When you're at a museum and you're looking at an object of art, whether it's a Liechtenstein or or, or a Rembrandt or a sculpture of Michelangelo, you know, what what happens? People are quiet, yeah? People are very quiet, very still. They move carefully. Everyone is, is respectful. Everyone is in awe of the art And not only that, they're really in awe of the abilities of the artist. In the presence of something famous, beautiful, magnificent, inspiring, you just stand with respect and reverence and honor to the creator. It's the same with God. Fearing God means being in awe of who he is and and what he's done. And it's not just about obeying him morally or believing in him mentally. It's an, it's an attitude of the heart in which, in which we're humbled by the creator's magnificence. And we're filled with awe before him and we're still and we honor him with, with wonder and joy. And that's why God says to the psalmist, he says, be still and know that I am God. Listen, Job feared God, he did. But here's the kicker. You cannot take what Job says out of context, He writes all of this in the midst of what? In the midst of suffering. (laughs) His life had gone terribly wrong, man. He, He lost his children through disaster, his wealth through calamity and injustice, most of his staff through violence, his health through disease. In other words, Job isn't merely saying, hey, if you want wisdom, fear the Lord. No, 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 no. Much more than that, he's saying, if you want wisdom, fear the Lord, particularly when you're suffering. Now, I get it, man. I get it, and I agree with you. That's a hard, hard teaching. I mean, fearing God when life is good, that's easy. That's a no-brainer. Revering him, honoring him, humbly trusting God when life stinks, you know, when we're confused and we're angry and we're distraught and we're in pain, that's hard. It was hard for Job. And just like you, I struggle with this, this idea. And again, at, at this point in my life, I don't have all the answers. But at this point in my life, the best way I see it is this way. When my kids were little, I remember taking them. To, we, we took them to the doctor's office, right, for their shots, their inoculations. And if you're a parent, and you've been through this. If you, if you're a kid and you have memories of this, nightmares of this, uh, you know how it goes. Everything's fun and good and happy and giggly until you get into the office and that first needle hits its. Spot, right. And then suddenly, I mean, the look of betrayal and confusion on their little faces, you know, their tears are just streaming down and are looking as if to say, dad, I thought you loved me. You know, how could you do this to me? Ouch. This hurts a lot. Stop this. Why don't you stop this? Why, why would you allow such random pain and suffering into my life? Everything was so good five minutes ago. I don't understand it. But of course, you know, as a loving parent, we say what? We say, look, I know, I know it hurts. Be still. Good will come of this. You can't understand it now, but the pain will go away. Trust me, you need this. This is going to be good for you. Do you realize that we are in the same place, the exact same place, spiritually speaking, The fact is, the distance between the understanding of of a baby and the wisdom of a parent is nowhere near as great as the distance there is between our understanding and the wisdom of God. I mean, sure, painful things happen in life. all of us and they may appear random and they may seem to carry no good purpose but in the midst of our tears and our confusion like job we we must fear god we must be still honor him revere him trust him because he knows what he's doing he alone is wise in fact in fact if you think about it we have an advantage over job we know that God not only sees our pain but completely understands it, because in Jesus, ultimately in Jesus, God Himself came into this broken world and experienced loss and pain and injustice and betrayal and brutality and pain, violence and death. In other words, suffering is God's experience, too. And His suffering has brought about eternal good, the possibility of our rescue. You realize among all the religions of the world, biblical Christianity alone claims that deity became uniquely, uniquely and fully human in Jesus and that God himself knows firsthand what suffering is about. He understands it. He suffered for us. And I find comfort and hope in that. Listen, the life God gave Job, the life that he's given us, uh, is an incredibly good and beautiful thing. But it's complicated sometimes, right? It's complicated sometimes. In a broken world with broken people, things happen, man. Things happen. Tragic things, sad things, unjust things, seemingly random, senseless, pointless, painful things that are just unavoidable. Suffering is a harsh reality of life that we just can 't fully comprehend, and you know i don 't know maybe you know maybe you 're going through something right now, maybe individually or as a couple or as a family you 're just going through something now that 's really, really hard it 's really hurtful it 's really confusing, and you 're struggling and you 're looking to God saying, "Father, I, I, why is this happening? Things were so good. Why is this happening? I, I thought you loved me." The thing is, he does love you more than you know. In these moments of struggle, in these moments of pain, in these moments of confusion, and we all experience them, we have a choice to make. Either we foolishly and arrogantly curse God, or like Job, in humility, recognize the complexity of life and our limitations and place our hope and trust in him no matter what. For he is God and we're not. He is wise and we are not. And he sees the good, even when we can't. And it's in the midst of his suffering, Job feared the Lord. He feared God. He honored him. He revered him. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord takes away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Though he slay me, yet will I hope in him. And that, my friends, is wisdom. Let's pray. Our Father, I'm grateful for the opportunity to be back with my friends, and um, we're also grateful, Lord, for all the good things that you give us in life. Uh, Life itself, family, friends, um, the creation all around us, the beauty of it, you've given it to us to enjoy, and and yet in the context of the beauty and, and, and all those good things, there comes pain, there comes suffering. There are acts of injustice, there's violence, there there are things that touch our lives and touch our relationships and touch our families which are inexplicable. We don't understand them and they hurt and we're confused and uh, none of us are exempt from that. We all experience those moments and I'm not sure what my friends have been through this summer. Um... But maybe maybe some of us are just really struggling right now and are having a, a difficult time being still. And we're, we're kind of crying out, Lord, why? Why? I thought you loved me. But the reality is you do more than we can even know. And in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the suffering, in the midst of the confusion, uh, Father, we must recognize life is com- complicated and we have limitations. But you, are God, are all wise and all good, and all loving. And so we trust you. We trust you with all we are. And we know that you have suffered as well and understand um, our experience. We love you for that. And we worship you in Jesus' name. Amen.